And a very formal and informal at the same time. Welcome to Daily Power Parsha. It is great to see you Tuesday, June 8th, 2021. I cannot believe because I, I mean, it's been over a year since we've started this, but I remember vividly June DPPs, my travels, remember my visits to wherever, you know, in the car and whatever in Florida and whatnot, doing my stuff. And it's great to have you here one year later. And we still have the group, as we would call it, the chevra, the, the, the crew, learning and studying and connecting together. It is amazing. I'm going to share my screen and we're going to get started with uh, the Torah reading. Here we go. Let's get it up. Torah reading for Korach. We did the first two readings yesterday. I'm going to do a quick, super fast recap. We talked about Korach, who was a cousin of Moses. Right? You, would, you wouldn't expect Mishpacha family to cause all sorts of problems, but, or maybe you would, but that's what happens in this week's Torah portion. Korach, Moses' cousin, Aaron's cousin, he decides to, wait, to stage a mutiny, an attempted overthrow of the leadership of Moses and Aaron. He couches it in terms like power to the people and why are there any leaders Let's overthrow leadership. Everyone is holy. Everyone is great. All the Jewish people are amazing. Why is there a Moses or an Aaron? Why is there a leader or a high priest? Aren't we all holy unto God? Of course, as we know, in many such types of power plays, when a person is you know, leading, when someone's leading a populist revolution, power to the people, oftentimes it ends with, and if you're looking for a leader, I'll be the new one. Right? And that's, of course, what Korach wanted, according to the commentaries and even according to Moses' own words, when he says to Korach, you're a Levi, you're a Levite, isn't that enough? You want the priesthood as well? It seems clear from those words that Moses literally says to Aaron, sorry, sorry, says to Korach, that Korach was gunning for Aaron's job and Moses' job, he wanted it all. So Moses was trying, yesterday we, we read about how Moses implores Korach and his followers to back down, to, to reconsider, to you know, just, just stop what he's doing, to no avail. Korach is not budging. He goes to Datan and, Abiram, and Abiram, the, the, uh, the thorns in his side for, all the, for the last few years, um, and it, trying to reconcile with them. They're not buying. They're not, they're not going for it. So finally, we have the dramatic showdown. And the dramatic showdown is going to include incense. Because Moses says essentially to Korach and his followers, if you really believe that God does not want Aaron as the high priest and God rather wants you, so then, then let's have a, 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 a fire offering contest, if you will. You bring offerings to God, Aaron will bring an offering to God. Whichever offering God prefers or wants, he'll let it be known. And whoever is the unwarranted offering... Whoever brings the unwarranted offering, whoever God does not choose or does not want, will pay the price. Well, that's what happens. Let's read it together in the third reading of this Torah portion. Okay, that was a quick recap of yesterday, the first two readings. We have to reading number three, which is Numbers chapter 16, verse number 20. So the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron saying, Disassociate yourself from this congregation. Because they had gathered at the end of yesterday's reading, we read about how Korach and his followers and the 250 wannabe priests or whatever they were, 250 people that, that they had um, you know, brought along with this, 
how they were gathering at the entrance of the tent of meeting by the Mishkan, you know, with their fire offerings, with their incense offerings. So God tells Moses and Aaron, uh, you might want to move. <laughs> you might want to step away from this group because it's about to get a little bit hectic, right? Disassociate yourselves from this congregation and I will consume them in an instant, says God. How many times has God told Moses what he's going to do to the Jewish people? Yeah. So look what, look what Moses and Aaron do. Verse 22, they fell on their faces and said, O God, the God of the spirits of all flesh, if one man sins, shall you be angry with the whole congregation? Collective punishment? Is that right? In other words, you're upset. Korach ultimately is the leader of this mutiny. So Korach is the one who started all the trouble. So you're upset with Korach. You're going to take out the people, a larger number of people, a larger group. Don't do that. And look what he says. He calls God, or I guess they, Moses and Aaron call, refer to God as, O God, the God of the spirits of all flesh. In the Hebrew, it's Kel Elokei Haruchot Lechol Basar. God, the God of the spirits of all flesh. What does that mean, that God, referring to God as the spirits of all flesh? What that means, according to the commentaries, is that God is not just a universal God, like a general God, but God is an individual God. God is the spirit of all flesh of every individual. God knows us on the inside. And so Moses tells, Moses and Aaron tell God, if you really know people from the inside, so then you know what's lurking in the heart of man, of, of, of your people. And you know that one person is being the rabble rouser, one person is being the stir of the proverbial pot, and the others are being swept into it. But treat them as individuals, not as collectives. Don't lump the group together, collective punishment. You are not a collective God. You are a God of each and every living being. So respond to them in an individual way and not in a collective way. I hope that makes sense. So that's, what, that's what's being implored of God. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, so God replies, speak to, the children, speak to the congregation saying, withdraw from the dwelling of Korach, Datan, and Abiram. In other words, God accepts Moses' plea. Moses says, don't punish the whole, the whole congregation. Don't lump everybody into this grave error of judgment. God says, okay, so tell the people, tell the larger congregation, move away. Withdraw from the dwelling means like the tents, like the living spaces of Korach, Datan, and Abiram. All right, so yeah, something, something's going to go down. Moses arose, uh, but before I continue, once, once again, we see how Moses goes to bat for the people and God spares not all, but some of the people. By the way, with the golden calf, the same thing. Those that were behind it didn't survive. Those that were followers, the leaders did not survive, the followers did. Obviously, leaders were very few. Same thing with the spies. The actual spies, the 10 spies that brought the evil report didn't survive. The others, they lived at least for 40 years. Over the next 40 years, they passed away. Here as well, the leaders didn't, are not going to survive, but the rest of the people will be spared. 
Now, verse 25. Moses arose and went to Datan and Abiram. And the elders of Israel followed him. He spoke to the congregation saying, Please get away from the tents of these wicked men and do not touch anything of theirs lest you perish because of all their sins. Basically telling the people, stay away from Datan and Abiram and of course Korach as well. But the, the commentaries have an interesting angle on this. It says Moses arose and went to Datan and Abiram. And we don't find that he said, he said anything to Datan and Abiram. Just says he arose and went to them. The way that some commentators understand this, because the next communication is to the people, to the congregation. So what, what, why did he go to Datan and Abiram? What, he brought the congregation there to tell them, don't get too close? He said, guys, let's take a field trip to Datan and Abiram's house. And then he tells them, get away from here? Does that make sense? That doesn't make any sense. So what does it mean that he arose and went to Datan and Abiram in verse 25? So there are some commentaries, I believe maybe it's even the Midrash, that says that Moses went to them one last attempt to reconcile. I spoke about this at length yesterday. That even when it's not your fight, you didn't start the fight, you and I, we should be the ones to end it. Even if we didn't create the mess, we should be the ones to clean it up. Why? Because of the overarching virtue and value of shalom, of peace. Peace is so important. We should strive to do everything and anything in our power to achieve peace to the point that even if we didn't cause the conflict, we should be the ones to try to end it. So Moses here in verse 25, he arose and went to Datan and Abiram and according to some commentaries, he went to them to once again attempt to reconcile and it didn't work. Because at the end of the day, you need both parties to reconcile. So you can try and try and try. And he tries multiple times. In the last few readings, there are at least three or four occasions that the Torah records where Moses tries to implore the other side to not be the other side, to just proceed peacefully. They're rebuffed. And so at that point, he tells the congregation, this is again, according to this commentary, he tells the congregation, saying, please get away from these tents, from the tents of these wicked men. Do not touch anything of them, of theirs, lest you perish because of all their sins. I hope that makes sense. This is one last ditch effort to try to reconcile and it does not work. So, verse 27. So they withdrew, the people withdrew from around the dwelling of Korach, Datan, and Abiram. And Datan and Abiram went out standing upright. Look at this. They went out standing upright at the entrance of their tents. You know what that means? They were standing upright. It means they were... Prideful. They were not going to back down. Oh yeah? We're going to revolt? We're going to try to overthrow your power? We're going to attempt a coup? We're going to you know, make this coup happen? They went out standing upright with pride. And I mean, pride sounds like a good thing. In this case, it would be arrogance and whatever. Hubris. I don't know what, whatever the right term is. They went out standing upright at the entrance of their tents together with their wives, their children, and their infants. According to, you know, mentions wives over here, very important to note. It says that who was the one that, um, a person that was really instrumental in Korach's downfall here was his wife. Because his wife told him, oh, your cousin is taking all the power for himself. 
and giving it to his brother. And you're getting nothing, right? So she was like, it says that they, we know this because it happened to our family. It happened to the Jewish people. So we know it, even if it's not written here, we know the backstory. The backstory is his wife was unfortunately very much a part of the, the instigation over here. Um, what happened over here? Sorry, I hit the, I scrolled by accident. Anyway, so that's that. And then there was another fellow at the beginning of the Torah portion. I just want to go back to the first reading for a second. There was a guy named On, the son of Pellet, who was part of the mutiny at the beginning. But I don't know if you notice, we haven't read about him since, right? We had Korach, we had Datan and Abiram, and the fourth guy was On, the son of Pellet. Well, he disappeared from the narrative because as we just read, it's basically Korach, Datan, and Abiram. What happened to On, the son of Pellet? So the commentaries say that his wife saved him. His wife basically got him to back down from this saying, you're going to destroy yourself and the family by, by pushing, pushing, pushing like this. And so here we have, you know, a, a statement about the power of influence and the power of, of spouses. You know, Korach's wife pushed him, you know, into, not, I'm not blaming her, I'm just saying that part of the mutiny and Owens helped him get out of trouble. And he ultimately was spared because although he was part of the mutiny originally, he backed down with help and encouragement and clear thinking from his wife. I think we all hope that our spouses and or friends and or mishpah, whatever, whoever is in our lives, right? We, I think we all hope to have um, th- that, that in addition to everything else, all the love and support and, you know, that, that our loved ones provide, but also clarity. You know, when we're headed down a negative path, when we're like seeing things a certain way, I think we all hope that somebody that, that loves us would, would, would be able to say to us, consider another option because, you know, I don't know if you're seeing this correctly. I know personally, I, I check in all the time with, uh, with loved ones just to me and, and friends to make sure that, you know, the way I'm seeing something, it makes sense or whatever. Even you know, Not that someone else has the truth necessarily, but at least another perspective is always helpful. Power of perspectives. Okay, let's continue. So they were, people were warned, you might want to move away from this, from these houses. But Dathan and Abiram, they were standing upright at the entrance of the tent with their family. So Moses said to them, verse 28, With this, you shall know that the Lord sent me to do all these deeds. For I did not devise them myself. If these men die as all men die, and the fate of all men will be visited upon them, then the Lord has not sent me. If they die of natural causes, then you should know it's not me. Sorry, it's not God. But if the Lord creates a creation, that means if something extraordinary happens, and the earth opens its mouth and swallows them and all that is theirs, and they descend alien, uh, sorry, alive, not alien. I don't know why I said alien. Um, they descend, that's, that was weird. UFOs are all the rage now. Anyway, but they descend alive into the grave. If this happens, says Moses, then you will know that these men have provoked the Lord. So if they just die in normal death, no indication that um, God is, uh, is doing this. I mean, God does everything, but like that they're being punished. But if something extraordinary happens, 
something completely out of the norm. If a creation happens and the earth opens its mouth and swallows them alive into the bowels of the earth, then you know that they overstepped. As, take a look at this. Verse 31. As soon as he finished speaking all these words, so as soon as Moses finished, the earth beneath them split open. The earth beneath them opened its mouth and swallowed them and their houses. You ever see a sinkhole? Like a massive sinkhole in the ground? Yeah, we've all seen like pictures and images of that. So I'm not attributing it to a natural thing. This was obviously like on demand this happened. So clearly this was a prophetic punishment. Um, the earth beneath them opened its mouth and swallowed them and their houses and all the men who were with Korach and all the property. They and all they possessed descended alive into the grave. The earth covered them up. Just, again, just another indication this wasn't your ordinary sinkhole. As quickly as the earth opened its mouth, so to speak, once they fell in, the earth closed and covered them up and they were lost to the assembly. What that means is they were gone. They were gone. All Israel who were around them fled from their cries. That implies that maybe their cries could even be heard under the ground. For they said, let's, we're going to bring up Rashi in a second to see. For they said, lest the earth swallow us up too. Right? Everyone started running in a panic away from there, saying, oh no, what's going to happen? And then a fire came forth from the Lord and consumed the 250 men who had offered up the incense offering, the unwarranted incense offering in the incense um, not competition, but when they were bringing the incense, you know, oh, hey, we're, why, why can't we also serve? So then a fire came forth and consumed them. This is what happened. I'm going to toggle Rashi. This is like the famous story of Korach being swallowed by the earth. Um, okay, yeah, Rashi explains. They, the people were frightened and they fled from their cries. Rashi says, because of the sound that emanated when they were swallowed up. So Rashi says, no, it's not that they heard them crying from beneath the earth although that might have also been the case, in, in fact. But they fled from the cries, from the sound that emanated when they were being swallowed up. So in the process of being swallowed up, they were, they were crying, and that's when the people panicked and ran. Let me toggle Rashi off for a moment. Okay, questions or comments on this wild story? So it doesn't seem like the method of extinction kind of matches what we try to do in the United States, like humane. Yeah. Extinction. Yeah. It, to me, it's, yeah, I, I would agree that this is not a um, painless situation. Although I don't know what happened when they went that. I, I don't know, you know, what, what, what went on, you know, down there. But I will say this. There is symbolism in the earth swallowing them up. On a symbolic level, it actually kind of makes sense. I know that's a weird phrase to use, but you'll see what I mean in a second. They were trying to divide the congregation, divide the people. They were sowing discord 
and hatred and, and suspicion, right? Enmity. They were sowing all of these negative, divisive emotions amongst the people. And the message is that when, when a person does that as a campaign, right? When that's your, like, that's your way of doing things, not you. I mean, that's when, when, when that's a person's way of doing things, that person is lost, right? That person is in seeking to make a name for themselves by dividing people amongst each other, by turning people against each other one ultimately loses their name and reputation. Just like they were lost, that, that, that phrase, they were lost to the assembly, that's a very significant phrase, right? I mean, that's all, that's all in that sentence. They descended alive into the grave, the earth covered them up, and they were lost to the assembly. Verse 33, lost to the assembly means their legacy, gone. Their reputation, gone. Any trace of their existence, gone. So instead of, and it's a very stark contrast, instead of being elevated to a position of prominence, when to try to get there, you're going to divide people and turn people against each other, ultimately it's going to backfire. And not only are you not going to gain, but you're going to lose everything. That's really the message. So on a level as simple as I'm with you on a practical level, I don't know that I can uh, you know, explain any further on that. I don't, I don't know that I have any more insights. But on a symbolic level, I think it's highly symbolic. It's, it's essentially, if we would say, like a, a parable. Not a parable, a, like a proverb type thing. Like the one who seeks fame, power, wealth at all costs will ultimately lose everything. I mean, I think that's kind of the moral of the story, right? I think also that by saying they're a loss to the assembly, that they don't want the negative influence to linger on. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and honestly, it's really a message. You know, all, all the stories in Torah, Torah means instruction. Torah means teaching. It's not a history book. It's not like <laughs> the early years of the Jewish people. That's not what, I mean, it talks about that, but not every story is mentioned. Certainly you can imagine that many more things happen, you know, to a people of a few million over a span of 40 years. A lot, lot more things happen. You could say these are the highlights or lowlights, sure, but really everything in Torah is specifically written and designed to be a moral and, and, and spiritual instruction in our lives. It's Torah is a guide, a guide to living. And, and, and so what's the message here? I think the message without getting mystical or Kabbalistic or, you know, very sophisticated, the message is, number one, don't, not even number one, the message is, don't, don't seek power in an ugly way. That's it. Uh, you you want to nominate yourself for a, for a position of leadership? Sure. I guess. Sure. But but to 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 break down a people, to turn brother against brother. I mean that you know. To turn people against each other, just to further your own agenda, personal agenda, is immoral. And it won't work. And it won't last. Sure, Korach gets a Torah portion named after him. And we're talking about him. So on some level, he does have a legacy. But his legacy is a negative legacy. It's the anti-legacy legacy. It's a lost legacy. That's the legacy of Korach is the guy who got swallowed up by the earth. And there's no trace. I will tell you, speaking of you know, what happened next, 
There is a teaching that tells us, and I mentioned this in, in previous classes in the past, that Korach's sons, his own children, the Bnei Korach, did not die when they were swallowed in the earth. They didn't go all the way down and... Where, so where did Korach go? To the core of the earth? Is it a physical place? Did he go to Gehenna, which is purgatory, which is a spiritual place? Is it both? I don't know that I can give you those details. I don't know that I can draw you a map because I don't know how clear that is. But I will tell you this. It says that the children, the sons of Korach, at the last minute, they had thoughts of remorse and they, they regretted what they had done. And because of that, when the earth swallowed, there was a little bit of a platform that was created for them under the earth where they were safe. They were able to hold on or stand or fall or land, whatever it is, and not descend all the way down where Korach and the others went. And they ultimately remained alive and ultimately climbed their way back up, broke through the earth, and resumed living. In fact, there are psalms that are Livne Korach, Mizmershir, a psalm composed by the sons of Korach. So there is this idea, the tradition that the sons of Korach ultimately made their way out of this, uh, this uh, for lack of better term, predicament. That's a very, very um, tame word. They made their way out of this predicament. The others did not. But again, remember, it was Korach, Datan, and Abiram, and their stuff, and their families, whatever. And then the other 250, fire, pan, incense, censer holders, they were consumed by fire. Okay. Let's continue. Um, well, I mean, I, let, let me just see if there are more questions. Any more questions on this? Questions, comments? Okay. Let's continue. Numbers chapter 17, verse number one. The Lord, definitely not a, um, not, not a simple story. Next, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, so right after Korach is swallowed up and right after the 250 incense bearers lost their lives, God speaks to Moses, and this is what he says. Say to Elazar, the son of Aaron, the Kohen, the deputy high priest. I don't know. If, I'm just making that up. But he was the next in line to be the high priest. That he should pick up the censers from the burned area. The censers were like these metal wands that you put like coals or an incense in and wave it around or whatever. So pick up the censers from the burned area but throw the fire away because they have become sanctified. The censers of those who sinned at the cost of their lives and they shall make them, you know, melt them down and make them into flattened out plates as an overlay for the altar. Look at that. Take these metal censers, these, if you look up censer, it's like this, you know, wand type looking thing. Um, and melt it down, or maybe not melt it down, but hammer it down either way, make it into flattened plates to cover the altar. For they brought them before the Lord and have therefore become sanctified. These censers became holy. So what are you going to do with them? Might as well use it for the altar. And they shall be as a reminder for the children of Israel. So Elazar the Kohen, listen to this, he took the copper censers, they were made out of copper, which the fire victims had brought, and they hammered them. Oh, they didn't melt them. They hammered them out 
as an overlay for the altar, as a reminder for the children of Israel so that no outsider who is not the seed of Aaron shall approach to burn incense before the Lord. So they kept these censers around to be a reminder, don't play with fire. Don't mess with the big kahuna. Don't mess with the Kohen Gadol and the priesthood. It's not going to end well. So that again, um, uh, uh, no outsider who is not the seed of Aaron shall approach to burn incense before the Lord. So as not, this is a reminder, so as not to be like Korach and his company, as the Lord spoke regarding him through the hand of Moses. So what we have here is a tale of three acts. Act one, the attempted mutiny. Act two, the demise of the rabble-rousers, Korach, Datan, and Abiram, and their stuff. Act three, God says, memorialize this, or eternalize this message by, by taking the copper censers and, um, and, and putting it as a copper plating for the altar. Here we go. If you thought the story was done, because I, I gave you three acts, act number four. The following day, the entire congregation of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron, saying, you have killed the people of the Lord. Plot twist. Plot twist. The people are sympathetic to whom? Korach, Datan, Abiram, and the 250 incense bearers. The people are now ganging up against Moses and Aaron, and now they're saying, you have killed the people of the Lord. Well, you can probably imagine. So, I mean, you would think it's done, right? So there was an attempted mutiny, attempted coup, and that was put down clearly by the hand of God. And, and, and now we have a lesson to learn. Great. Not great. People are still sympathetic to Korach. This didn't work. The message was not received. It came to pass while, while the congregation were assembled against Moses and Aaron that they turned to the tent of meeting and behold, yeah, you guessed it, the cloud had covered it. This is not the first time this has happened. We had it yesterday also when God approaches to have a conversation with the parties involved, right? The cloud had covered it and the glory of the Lord appeared. And now the people are in trouble. They were in trouble before. Moses got them out of trouble. The people that were behind the, the coup were punished, but now the people are doubling. What's the, what's the language? They're doubling up. They're doubling down. They're doubling down on this, and God is now not happy. Um, the glory of the Lord appeared. Moses and Aaron came to the front of the tent of meeting. Talk about a cliffhanger. All right, so that's what we're up to. We're going to stop for today because tomorrow we're going to pick it up with the fourth reading. So this is where we're up to today. A lot of drama. And just when you think it's done, it's not done. Which, even before we get into the aftermath, the fact that the people could come back after such seemingly a clear, you know, clear message that God did not like Datan, Abiram, and Korach. And God did not like the 250 incense bringers. God clearly has demonstrated, I don't like those guys. I choose Moses and Aaron. That the people should still have the chutzpah to show up the next day and say, you kill God's people means that the lesson was not learned. And this is a lesson about lessons and about teaching. Sometimes 
you try and approach to influence or to teach and it doesn't work. And you think you did a great job. Like, obviously, there's no other way to see it now, right? Didn't I just lay things out clearly for you? And sometimes the answer is no. You thought you did, but you didn't. You could blame them or you can maybe modify the way you're going to deliver the message to make it more effective next time. And we'll see here how the next thing that happens is a modification of the message. Right? Let's, how do we educate the people as to what's right and what's not right? Because the approach we just did clearly didn't work if the next day the people assembled against Moses and Aaron once again and said, you kill God's people. Clearly, that didn't work. So again, you could blame the people or you can pivot and create a different message. We find this in all sorts of areas in our lives. We try to influence, whether it's our children, whether it's our friends, whether it's colleagues, whether it's community people, strangers. We all want to influence on some level, right? For something. And oftentimes we feel, we find that people are not responding and the tendency is to blame them. What's wrong with them? Why don't they just get it? Sometimes it's important to look inside. The Rebbe would always say, if you're trying to influence someone and they're not being influenced, it's easy to point the finger at them. Right? But when you point the finger at them, you're pointing at least three fingers at yourself. Do it. Try it. Right? You're pointing one at them, but three are coming back to you. The Rebbe always said, if the words are coming from your heart, they will enter the other one's heart. If they're not coming from your heart, they're not going to enter their heart. So if they don't enter... If your influence is not working, first step is to look inside. Obviously, it's possible that the other person is just not open to it, for sure. But we always look inside because at the end of the day, it's the only thing we can control. I think today, you know, when we think about world politics and Israel and everything, and we wonder, like, wow, how is it that the way we see things, you know, there's such a clarity? And how come the world doesn't see it? Yeah? We have to look inside. I'm not blaming, right? I'm just saying, you know, if, if we want to be more influential, if someone or people in general want to be more influential and, and, and more impactful in messaging, you got to look within. Mark is, uh, is a marketing guy, right? It's even in his name, Mark Itting. So, so look, Mark, it, right? In an ad, if the ad doesn't work, if the message doesn't get through, who do you blame? The customer or, or the ad. I mean, yeah, I'm, not, I'm not blaming you. I'm just saying, like, you, you pivot, right? You just you readjust your, um, your campaign, right? If, if it doesn't boost sales or whatever it is, the way you'd be angry at the customers, they don't get it. I mean, you could, but for how long? You still need to, to adjust. So you adjust the messaging because you realize there's got to be another message that's going, something is going to get through. Let's, let's figure out what that is. And we'll see tomorrow as we continue the Torah reading that there's another approach taken and it's going to be a little bit more educational and a little bit more resonant with the people to really inform them of why Aaron is the priest, why Moses is the leader. There's going to be a little bit more education instead of just a very heavy-handed approach. Oh, you don't like it? Down into the bowels of the earth with you, right? Like, Okay, that's a heavy-handed approach. Does it really work? Does it influence? I don't know. So tomorrow we get a little bit of a, of a different tactic, which will be more influential. All right, questions or comments before we close out today's action-packed session?
around here. I'm sorry. I just noticed that you talk about hammering the metals again. Yes. You know, we and usually it's been that the object has to be made from one piece of metal. Yes. But here, I mean, they were individual. 250 pieces. Very good point. Yeah. 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 I, and... Exactly. I'm wondering the symbolism in that. That's a very good point, right? There's always been research on, to try and find it on the Chabad.org. I didn't. Yeah. I'm just thinking again. I'm just freestyling here, so not don't take anything that I say that seriously. But I'm thinking maybe the message here is e pluribus unum, right? From many into one. That that here with this discord and this disharmony, the idea is to go from a place of conflict to a place of unity. So the other items were who's talking about conflict? So we start off with one, and that's it. But here we had conflict, so the idea is maybe to take from the disparate, you know, the, the, the separate pieces and make them into one to symbolize a healing of, of a fragmented community. Maybe. Again, I'm, it's a freestyle insight, but I think, the, I think more important than any insight that I just shared is the, the noticing of that, of that distinction. And uh, yeah, that's good. I, I think when, when it comes to Torah study, this is always something very important. Whenever you notice a, a wrinkle, when I say a wrinkle, I mean like something that seems a little bit, you know, mismatched. Like we've always been talking about one piece of metal. Now we have 250. When you notice that, that's always a, an, an entry into some sort of insight. So, so there must be something about the Still hammered, still hammered, yeah. And I wonder if they melted it down. I mean, can you take 250 pieces and just... But it would be liquid. It would be liquid. But then, and then maybe hammered from that. I don't. I, I don't. I'm not saying it was. I'm. Just, I'm. One, I'm thinking out loud. I, I. don't know. There's no indication that it was melted down, but it's interesting. Yeah. Mark. Yeah, I have an interesting note on that actually. Oh yeah. This is from uh, Ms. Rachi's uh, Sifse. Both commentaries on Rashi. Yeah. So it says it stands to reason that the copper of these fire pans was used to coat the copper altar rather than the gold altar. The outer altar, the yeah. Copper, the, yeah. Furthermore, the copper of the fire pans could be assigned to the children of Israel only if they were on the copper altar, which stood out in the open in the courtyard of the tabernacle. Right. The gold altar was not visible to the public, but was in the interior of the tabernacle. Yes, excellent. Good. Good, so some insights into that. Some very good insights into that. I actually have... So let me just explain what Mark just read. Basically, there were two altars. So if we go back into our Torah reading, let me just go back and share the screen again. If we go back into our Torah reading, so it says, um, yeah, the censors make them into flannel plates as an overlay for the altar. And the question is, which altar? And so Mark read commentaries, Mizrahi, Susikachamim, all commentaries um, that also help comment on Rashi. Which altar? The outer copper altar, not the inner golden altar. Why? Because it's supposed to be a reminder for the children of Israel, well, where are the people going to see it? The people were not allowed into the temple building. Only the priests were allowed there. The people were not allowed to see the golden altar, the incense altar. So they were only able to see the outer altar where they were, if you needed to bring an animal sacrifice for whatever reason, you would be in proximity. So it stands to reason that these copper um, the copper censers that were hammered out for the altar were done so for the copper altar additional. They were already coated in copper. This is an additional copper coating on, overlay on top of that 
as a reminder of what happened. And just, just to show you some Rashi's over here, um, flattened out, again, thinned out, um, metal sheets beaten flat, so Rashi quotes Old French, which is always fun, tenvis, I don't know, thinned out, flattened, um, we need our French, old French experts, but some sort of tinvish, tin, tinvish, tin, maybe tin, I don't know. Anyway, for the cop, huh? Ari, I've got an old French, a tin veron, and then it says in modern French, a tenuel, which they say makes an attenuating, thinning out, thus making it into a thin plate. Huh? Well, correct. Kind of like dough, like you flatten the dough, you squish wow. it. Wow. That's some good French sleuthing, Mark. Excellent. Good, good stuff there. I love that. By the um, way, I have one, one, one thing about Korach, but I came in late, so if, if I cover this, I apologize. Sure. But I understand that one reason or one rationale why Korach would do what he did is because he had the gift of prophecy. Have you covered this? No. No, but go ahead. He had, he had the gift of prophecy, and he saw... That he, that he would be the the great 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 whatever the the, uh, the antecedent whatever of Samuel. Samuel, of course, was the prophet who anointed the first Jewish king of Israel and the second Jewish king, Sam, Saul and 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 David. Right. So Samuel was was a big. So you're saying because he saw prophetically that he would be that from him would come greatness, great leaders. So he thought maybe it was him. Maybe he should take it right now. Yeah. By the way, in tomorrow night's Torah studies class, we're going to give a completely different version of the story. I've been very careful to paint this story this week um, in, you know, a pretty much straightforward surface light because tomorrow night, we're going to learn the Rebbe's take on it, which paints Korach in a positive light. Not, I mean, not like he's the best guy ever, but at least a positive spin on what otherwise seems to be a, hor- a horrific story, a horrible story. And it was a horrible story, but there is also, as the Rebbe always found, a redeeming quality in everybody, even the villains of, uh, of Torah. So that's what we're going to do tomorrow night. It's going to be a lot, a very interesting and a lot of fun. Tomorrow night's class. All right, I think we'll close it out. I would just want to mention a few quick announcements. Number one, if you're not yet um, RSVP'd for Sunday, we have Sunday's event open to the community free of charge. Um, Sunday's Gimel Tamos event. It's the third of Tamos, the Rebbe's yard site, 27 years since the Rebbe's passing. An evening tribute to the life and legacy of the Lubavitcher Rebbe. If you haven't yet uh, put your name down for it, please do so on our website, intownjewishacademy.org. It's going to be a beautiful event. We have a, a, a wine and dessert reception to kick off the evening. We're going to have a film uh, screening for the first time, a film premiere, short film premiere. And then, of course, our guest speaker, uh, my brother-in-law, Rabbi Moshe Kesselman, who's a fantastic speaker. And his topic is Stories to Stir the Soul. So that's all happening Sunday, starting at 6.30 p.m. Is that Leia's maiden name? Yes, Kesselman. Yeah, that is her maiden name. Yes, yeah, it's... it's it's Ashkenazi, very much so. It's very much. It's German. A lot of it is German and Lithuanian Jews. Dutch. Dutch yeah, yeah, yeah. A lot of, lot of Jews from Europe. Very Ashkenazi. Yeah. 
You know, it's an in-person event, so I may get the technology hooked up to also live stream it, but I, I can't guarantee it. Um, I'm focusing on the in-person experience. Um, if I'm able to get up a Zoom going, I'll let, I'll, I'll let everybody know, but I'm not sure yet. I'm working on a few, few options for that. Yeah. Say it again. Tonight. Yeah, tonight, 8 o'clock, yes. Tonight is the JLI, the, the online Zoom uh, final session of This Can Happen, 8 p.m. tonight. Exactly. Yes. Mark, what were we saying? It's a really good question. No, we're not. We're not yet. We have a camp going on over here. It's, it's, it's wild. There's in the city camp, a local Jewish day camp, took over the building. Literally, I'm hunkered down. Every space, I'm in Canada Heart, it's beautiful. So many kids, and they're using all the spaces um, for, for the kids. They're using Jeff's place, they're using upstairs. I mean, we're borrowing it Sunday, the synagogue space, and obviously Shabbos. Um, but after it's over, we gotta reset it for the camp and get it all back, because Monday morning they're back at it. So no, we're gonna be off for the next few weeks because it's just, it, there's too much too much action going on over here and space is being used. So we're, um, we're, we're kicked out, if you will, <laughs> for yeah. a few weeks. It's only a good um, thing, it's beautiful, yeah. Um, uh, God's willing, I'm leaving for France tomorrow night. Amazing. The borders are reopening and I haven't seen my family for two years. Amazing. Oh, so I hope I will uh, you know, join from there from time to time. But yes. Six hours. It would be amazing. It would be amazing. Well, DPP, hopefully you can join. That would be amazing. It would be amazing. If you can join for DPP, I guess it's still decent. For a nighttime class, it might be a little bit more complicated. But listen, you know, if it works. Six hours Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Listen, you know, if you get 2 a.m., you're like, ugh, I wish there was a class going on or 3 a.m., You'd have got something going on. Save travels. Pretend it's Shavuot. Yes. Right. Shavuot. Exactly. It's another Shavuot. All night learning. Um, Sandrine, save travels and um, enjoy the mishpacha. Enjoy the family. Who's going? Just you? Thank you. Uh, me, Ariel, and I. Wow. Ma Lena, unfortunately, we... Uh, her passport doesn't have the six months. You need six extra months. Um, got it. Got know, it. When you return. Right. So we're waiting for the new passport. I think it's going to come on time. So. Got it. Well, en enjoy. Quick trip to en enjoy, you. enjoy. Yeah. Safe travels and happy travels. Have a All right. Trip. We'll see you, everybody. Yeah. Ha have a yeah, wonderful day. Awesome. Yes, we'll be in touch. Take care, everybody. See you guys. Take care. Thank you. Bye -bye. Pleasure. We'll see you guys.